Hallelujah. Oh, Father, we thank you that this song rings true through the ages, that the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf, Lord, is as real for us today as it was the moment you were slain, O Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. This morning at your table, as we gather, we have before us what you gave to the apostles, the ceremony, the meal, which represents your flesh torn and your body's blood spilled. And we thank you, Lord, that in this experience today, where we connect tangibly with the essence of the faith, Lord, through these means of the Word and this meal, we celebrate, we proclaim, we remember, and we experience, Lord, in our affections once again, the power that saved us, that resurrected us from spiritual death, and will resurrect us on that final day. Not only this, but the power that will justify us as we stand before the great white throne, clean, pure, with robes of righteousness, of Christ's righteousness, draped across our form. We thank you that these are the this is the confidence and these are the promises that we have in the truth of the Holy Word of God. As we turn now to your immortal scriptures, to your Holy Word, I pray that the Spirit would illuminate those truths to our hearts, that we may be thoroughly equipped, lacking nothing, to share, Lord Jesus, the message of the kingdom beyond this place today. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Praise God. What a great opportunity we have and what a privilege it is for us to behold the means of grace this day as we open up the Holy Scriptures. I'd encourage you to do so by turning in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. Turn to Hebrews 11, if you will. And today, in our series in Hebrews 11, we come upon three examples of faith. Three examples from the Old Testament around the time of the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan. The title of my message this morning, this morning is Sea, City, and Harlot. Sea, City, and Harlot, or Prostitute. You might wonder why those three nouns. It's for this reason. All three of them are presented as a seemingly insurmountable obstacle to the will of God. Yet all three of these are surmounted by God's grace. And those who are involved in these scenarios, by His gift in their heart, see beyond them through the eyes of faith and experience deliverance in spite of circumstances that shout to the contrary. The aim of this morning's message is this, that as we behold the Word of God, that our faith would grow. Our faith would grow as we realize our own inadequacies and on the other side of the coin, the sufficiencies of Christ. The Word of God in our text today reveals to us our own inadequacies, but also the sufficiencies of Christ. We need to be aware of both in order to grow in our faith. We are weak, He is strong. Would you stand with me with your Bible open to Hebrews 11, out of reverence for the Word of God, Follow me as I read just three scriptures this morning. Hebrews 11, 29 through 31. Here we have the Holy Word of God. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled 
for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Hey, Mark, would you mind grabbing the lights? Turn them up a little. Thanks. In our series on this chapter, we've noted numerous examples of faith. As you recall, we open in 11 with this explanation and definition. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now we go on to see this in real time, demonstrated, first of all, in this example in verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. We see the record of God's work in the heart of particular individuals moving forward through time, through redemptive history. Verse 5 records another example. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken up, he was commended as having pleased God. Following him, we have the example of Noah. Verses 6 and following give us the, the uh, testimony of reverent fear in the heart of this obedient servant, which moved him to construct an ark for the saving of his household. And then we have the quintessential, if you will, the classic father of the faith, Abraham, verse 8, who obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. The word continues to give us the record of these individuals. We have Isaac, we have Jacob, we have Moses, who we spent some time on, verses 23 through 26, teach us of the examples of faith in Moses' life. And that brings us to our text today, verse 29. And here, for the first time, we have a group, a collective, a collection of people rather than an individual, which is highlighted. It says in verse 29, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land. And this, of course, was the Israelites at the time of the Exodus, having moved from slavery by the delivering hand of their almighty God through his servant, this messenger prophet Moses. They're leaving to cross into the promised land, yet they meet obstacles in the way namely a sea and a city. And there are also personal obstacles in the way, as we have at the end of our text today another personal example of faith in action, Rahab, the prostitute or harlot. Her sin surely would stand in the way, would it not, of faith? Yet somehow these obstacles are surmounted. As the author of Hebrews continues to multiply these examples of faith, these, uh, these uh, individuals and these groups of people present themselves in several instances, which feature these foreboding roadblocks, and, and, but not only that, also shared experiences. So there's roadblocks in the way, but also shared experiences that are featured in the text. These references feature the power of God intervening in the most challenging circumstances, thus demonstrating His superior power. They also remind us that all believers share in the experience of salvation and its attending promises no matter how deep and profound our once wicked life was, all believers equally share, ultimately speaking, in the experience of salvation and its attending promises. We, today, 2,000 years after Christ has come, and many thousand years after these events were recorded in history for us to appreciate, nevertheless, we can relate to these accounts. If not in their spectacular scope, after all, we may never have seen a, we probably never will see a, a sea part, 
by the sovereign hand of God to create a supernatural pathway for us to traverse to our physical promised land. Nevertheless, we relate to these certainly in their principled themes. That is to say, God has delivered us. He's delivered us in an equally profound way, and in some ways even more so. What would it profit a man to cross a sea supernaturally and to lose his soul? Yet it greatly and eternally profits a man to cross the chasm that eternally separates him from a holy God unto eternal life. And so in Christ is our exodus, if you will, across the sea of sin, sovereignly parted by Christ. And so through His torn flesh, as this same book proclaims, we have free entry into the promised land presence of His holy realm, communion and relationship with a holy, loving God who has provided His sacrifice for us. And so we relate. At her exodus, Israel is plagued by inferior, well, let me back up a moment. If we can relate to these accounts, if not in their spectacular scope, as I mentioned, certainly in their principal theme, we note in these three examples of faith, Israel at the exodus, Israel at the conquest, and the conversion of Rahab, we note in these three examples of faith tested and proven, they occur in spite of apparent, inherent disqualifications. Again, obstacles in the way. But faith shines through in spite of these, and God intervenes in spite of them. At her exodus, Israel is plagued by inferior cultural experience, oppression, and slavery. Uh, you talk about the odds stacked against Israel escaping from Pharaoh. You would think that Israel lived and died at the pleasure of this imperial force, Pharaoh. If he wanted them to be their slaves, they were going to be enslaved for centuries. If you wanted to deliver him, that was fine, but if he changed his mind... You know what? Uh, that's totally up to him. He had all the power, all the chariots, all the means, all the strength of the people behind him, all the superior war machine. Yet in spite of all these things, we see these apparent disqualifications for the purposes of God overcome by the mighty work of our Lord in history. At her exodus, Israel is plagued by these kind of inferiorities. Israel in conquest remained ill-equipped for war, boasting no training, no equipment proper to the task, and no tactical advantage. You think of the almost absurd, in fact, to the eye of man, certainly absurd situation of walking around, you know, systematically traversing around a city and shouting things and blowing horns, what effect that might have to conquer this new world they had just entered. Ridiculous on the face of it. Yet the walls of Jericho, Historically, among the tallest and thickest that we have recorded in the ancient world, they were no match for the power of God, even though His people lacked the proper equipment, the tactical advantage, and training, and swords, and everything else. And then finally, think of Rahab. Rahab's vocation, if you will, to put it nicely. Rahab's lifestyle, her your classic sin, her you know, wickedness, their timeless wickedness of prostitution. If that wasn't black mark enough, think of her status as a pagan citizen among the Gentile Canaanites. A personal, sinful situation. Insurmountable personal experience, it would seem on the face of it. Yet, in all these cases, none of these disadvantages could derail the decrees of God, nor the faith manifesting itself in the hearts of His chosen people. 
as they trusted God's word in spite of these handicaps. For each one of these examples in Hebrews 11, the word of God was more powerful, more effective than any other possible or possible force or probability calculation based on what they were going through. Let us consider this a little more deeply this morning under this heading. Let us note the shared experience of the faithful. The shared experience of the faithful include these three categories, mass exodus, kingdom conquest, and personal conversion. We see the shared experience of the faithful represented in our text today, first of all, in this mass exodus, secondly, in this kingdom conquest, and thirdly, in personal conversion. First of all, mass exodus. Let's get some background. Turn with me to Exodus 14, if you would. And let us note the Red Sea crossing as it's recorded by Moses himself in the Pentateuch. Notice how profound these events are, not only in their supernatural, the supernatural nature of the activity, but also in the symbolic significance that would point forward to redemption for all of time. Exodus 14.21 Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. If you were to rewind in the record, you would note that in order for this time lapse to take place, the glory cloud that was attending the way, leading them under normal conditions, had moved between this encampment, historians think a million strong, and their pursuers. So you have the glory cloud shielding them from the uh, army, the pursuing Egyptians, and you have this wind, this incomprehensibly powerful force blowing across the seas all night long, building heaps of water on either side of the pathway to deliverance. This happened all night until the sea, it's dry land, verse 22 And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Good news, bad news situation, right? Okay, we have a pathway through this obstacle, but nipping at our heels is the entirety of the war machine of, is, uh, of the Egyptians. Verse 24, and in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel For the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Pause there. What a stupid observation. Why do I say that? If they had not realized at this point that the Lord fights for the Israelites, they were dumb as rocks. (laughs) That indeed was the case. How many times did the Lord showed 
that he was fighting for his people. He had done so in a plague of flies, in a plague of lice, in a plague of hailstones crushing the livestock. He had done so by taking the firstborn. He had done so by turning the Nile into blood. He had done so time and again showing his great wonders. He had done so by shielding them with this glorious cloud. He had done so by raising up this unlikely vessel, Moses, with a speech impediment to declare, let my people go, and defeating the most powerful authority structure on the planet at the time, and yet they were still blind to the power of God showing His favor to His people. Their eyes were finally opened when in their vain pursuit, their chariot wheels became clogged and their attempt to chase down the, sla- the once the one-time slaves proved ineffective. Yet God had them right where He wanted them. This was a divine trap. Verse 26, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a, tall, being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel, verse 30, that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. The next morning, belly up bodies of Egyptian soldiers are lapping against the shore with the waves that had now subsided, showing the record of God's judgment in this water event, this flood, as it were, as if you will. In verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. This was the mass exodus event to which our author refers when he says, Hebrews eleven twenty nine. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Notice, first of all, in this text, that faith makes all the difference. Even if all else is equal or there's even advantages to the enemies. In other words, what separated the people from the Egyptians to secure their hope for the future? Was it their superior wits? Was it their careful strategy? Was it their uh, defeat in war? No, it was the sovereign power of God. And they were only confident and content in as much as they placed faith in that sovereign power of God. In as much as they feared Him and His word more than they feared the threat of the Egyptians chasing them. Now this record is not to say that every individual who plodded on dry land across the Red Sea, was a faithful, confident, never-wavering saint. Certainly we know that's not the case because it's not too long before, in spite of the testimony of God's faithfulness, we find them complaining against His servant Moses again. Again, the stupidity of man's hard heart comes out even in the sinful nature that attends the way of the Israelites, even as that stupidity of man's hard heart was featured in Pharaoh and the Egyptians as they pursued him. Nevertheless, the message remains the same. Safety and security for the clear-thinking person ought to only 
be invested in the word of God, his promises. Align yourself with him. Find your identity in his covenants. See him as your father. Embrace his salvation. Plan your life and see your future secured in what Christ has purchased on Calvary. And no matter the difficulties between now and eternal life, you will find a way through life's most challenging seas. There are times in life where the enemies seem to share in the favor that we enjoy. The Bible says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And it's sort of an ironic detail that even though God prepared sovereignly all night long a dry path through a sea, cut right through the middle of this body of water for his people, all of a sudden the Egyptians were using that same path as well. And I'm sure there were a few who doubted, you know, yeah, I saw the salvation of the Lord in making this way, but now look at this. The Egyptians are pursuing us as well. Was this any surprise to God that he was, if you will, blessing the Egyptians, you know, quote unquote, with a path through the sea, even as he was allowing his people? No. Those who would doubt based on that circumstance were not looking far enough ahead. If they could see through the eyes of God's sovereignty, they would know that the purpose that the Egyptians were led into the sea was indeed for their own destruction. The wicked prosper for a season. And Psalms, like Psalm 73, ask that question. Why does God let good things happen to wicked people? That's not the most popular question these days. More popular, you know, why do good things ba- happen or bad things happen to good people is the popular question these days, which is a fallacy, which is based on a fallacy. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. There's no such thing as a good person. If you calculate, if you measure the goodness of man by biblical categories. However, the question remains, why do good things sometimes seem to happen to bad people, as it were, such that it would show, it would seem to thwart God's intention and his promises? Faith, you remember, as described in Moses' experience, is the ability to see the invisible. Faith is the ability to see that though the wicked seem to prosper for a time, and though they seem to have this ability to oppress those they trample underfoot that are the faithful servants just trying to hang on to their faith in a dark culture and a dark world. Faith sees beyond these circumstances to God's judgments in the future. Faith faith rests assured that at the final judgment, all who denied the Lord because they had their own wealth and power to lean on will be led as it were if they do not repent into the sea of God's reckoning. And one day, the waves of time, the waves of their life will close upon them and there will be no more appeal. This is the reality of all who die as enemies of Christ. Let us plead for the pursuing Egyptians, as it were, in our day, that they might not, that they might not continue in their hardness of heart to be willfully blind to the presence and power of God and the terms of salvation made clear in His holy word. Let us plead with the Lord and proclaim His truth that while there is time, men might turn and repent before the waves close upon them. The shared experience of the faithful in this mass exodus includes also the idea that in one event, the salvation for, salvation for God's people was provided 
as well as judgment for his enemies. This is the genius and power of our God in history. This is a concept in Scripture we see over and again. One of two things were true for everyone who was crossing the Red Sea at that time. Whether you're an Egyptian or an Israelite, depending on where your heart was with respect to Yahweh, one of two things was true. This experience was either a baptism for you or it was water judgment. Baptism or judgment. What is baptism? Baptism is that ritual that God has commanded continue in the experience of each one, but it relies on pictures in the Old Covenant described by the same terms. That is to say that when the Israelites were brought through the waters safely, it's described as a baptism. These waters that should have judged them in their sin, God in His mercy and grace caused them to pass through by His sovereign intervention. The intervention of God provided salvation through judgment. That is the picture, that is the proclamation of baptism. In baptism today, if you have been baptized, the picture of being immersed or sprinkled, uh, depending on your preference, in water, and then coming through that experience unscathed, is a picture of God's sovereign hand of salvation through the waters of judgment. And so for those that were in, in, understood this and in faith believed the promises of God, this was an experience uh, that attended their salvation. But for those who denied Him, this was judgment. And so in the same event, we see God accomplishing His purpose and upholding His glories in judging the wicked and saving those who trust in His salvation. 2 Corinthians 2.16, what does it say? That you, believer, as you live your life, you are a fragrance to some of life unto life. That is, to those whose hearts are being drawn by the Spirit, the message of exclusive salvation in Christ alone by His shed blood in distinction to the world which preaches a thousand heresies. That message for those who are being drawn by the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit is like sweet honey to the tongue. It's like glorious music to the ears. It's like a comforting blanket on a cold winter's night, a fragrance of life unto life. Yet that very same message to those who have doubled down in their Egyptian-like hardness to place their allegiance with the kingdoms of this world, with the powers of the day, with the dominant cultures who raise themselves up in rebellion against the King of Kings and His Almighty Savior, for them, the gospel is a fragrance of death unto death. The same message, depending on the orientation of the hearer, sounds like death or sounds like life. Luke 2, 34 there's a prophecy in the temple as Jesus is being dedicated. And what does he proclaim at this point in the temple? Prophesying under the unction of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus is being cradled, he says, this one stands for the rise and fall of many in Israel. Jesus Christ is a symbol of judgment for those who will not surrender to his lordship. Yet he is salvation for those who bow before the cross and trust in His act on Calvary as their salvation. Second Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8, the imagery of stone is in view. The same stone, for one, it's the chief cornerstone upon which their hope, their future, their life, their choices, their lifestyle, their identity is built. Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. To the other, to the next, who does not repent 
lay his life down before the king of kings. For him, it's a crushing stone that will grind him into powder. In one fell swoop, when the Lord intervenes at his perfect point of choosing, one event is proven a baptism or a water judgment. One event is proven salvation for his people and judgment for his enemies. A fall and a rising, a cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a fragrance of life, a fragrance of death. Just briefly, before we go to our next verse, Hebrews 11.30, also notice that the Passover benefits are extending beyond just salvation from the death of the firstborn on that fateful night. Verse 28, speaking of Moses, and then by extension, the people, our author records, by faith he, that is Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And you remember the event, the angel of death passed over when the blood of the Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb, was there upon the doorpost of each house then that had that sacrifice made so that the judgment would pass over. Well, the benefits of Passover, as it were, extended beyond this point. Now the benefits of Passover were experienced in passing over, as it were, the Red Sea. So this salvation is now being manifest from the enemy of the angel of death and now the enemy of these servants of Satan that are chasing them. And God has proven himself once again God of their passing over, God of their salvation. He will attend their way. He will chaperone them safely to the promised land of glory. And so he will for us. This judgment was not arbitrary. It was indeed proportional to the crime. Think of what the Egyptians were guilty of under the leadership of Pharaoh. They had taken the Hebrew male babies and thrown them to a death of drowning in the Nile. And now, in direct judgment for that sin, God had intervened at a point of His choosing, and those who drowned the Hebrew children now drowned themselves. It were drowned themselves in the Red Sea. Now, our faith can be built by witnessing both events, the judgments of God in history and the salvation of His own. Consider that we are inadequate to pass through the Red Sea, yet the sufficiencies of Christ will bring us beyond every challenge that stands in our way unto glory. Secondly, let us consider the shared experience of the faith evident in kingdom conquest. We just covered the mass exodus experience of God's people. Now let's see the kingdom conquest represented in verse 30, Hebrews 11. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, again, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. What is the event in question here or in, under consideration? Turn to Joshua chapter 6. Here is the record of once again an ill-equipped people nevertheless taking ground for the Lord because the power of their efforts was based in the decree of Almighty God, not in their ability to accomplish it. Though they were inadequate, the sufficiencies of Christ, as it were, are evidenced in these events. Joshua 16, or 6, excuse me, verse 12. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. 
Verse 14, the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp, so they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day. They marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times, and at that seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Verse 17, And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Now listen closely, because it pertains to our next verse in Hebrews 11. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take uh, any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. He goes on to give instructions about how the spoil uh, is to be allocated. And then he talks about um, these various things. And, And as we come to closer to the end of the text, verse 23, So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. There's many lessons to learn here. Note, though, in the text that these things happened Only after, verse 20 records, the people shouted, the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. This is the record of the event in Israel's conquest, where the faith, where by faith, As the author of Hebrews records, the walls of Jericho fell down flat, as we have just read, after they had been encircled for seven days in this conquest ceremony. In the intertestamental period, Judas Maccabeus, he was a zealot warrior for the Israeli cause, seeking to liberate the oppressed Israelites from their current oppressor. He is said to have prayed a prayer, and he addressed the Lord with this opening phrase, to the great sovereign of the world who, without battering rams and instruments of war, laid Jericho low in the days of Joshua. This man, this military leader, went on, uh, as, it, as we see it even in the course of history, extra biblical history, nevertheless, he prayed this prayer to the great sovereign of the world who, without battering rams and instruments of war, laid Jericho low in the days of Joshua. That is a phrase, that is a godly phrase from a political leader. Would that we would hear it this day. We are interested in conquest this day no less than the people of God were then. But do we rely on the same tools? Could you possibly see a strategy hammered out in the Pentagon or the State Department or you know, the, uh, where the Secretary of Defense lays out carefully before his generals, you, know, you have Mattis and everybody else, you know, hardened, grizzled veterans of war and conflict and strategy, and they study carefully this plan of attack. What if we go out and we bring the musicians first, uh, we march silently, uh, silently around Mosul, you know, that city in Iraq around 
the uh, dissidents that our military forces want to conquer. Let's do that six times, and on the seventh day we'll do it seven times per these instructions. Perhaps our efforts will be successful. They would be laughed out of the situation room. Laughed out of the situation room. It took great faith to trust the Lord under these circumstances. Why? Because by the analysis of man, this was a counterintuitive strategy. Uh, strategy. A counterintuitive strategy. Why would we trust the word of God when we can tangibly appreciate the power of the sword? Well, David, operating under that same premise, took a census of all his warriors, and how did that go for him? The real power, the angel of the Lord, unsheathed his sword and in one event slayed 70,000 people because under the leadership of this once godly king, now in sin, he testified that his faith was in the sword of his warriors and not the sword of the Lord. That is a testimony of faithlessness. When leaders of any nation or any have any responsibility over anything really trust in themselves and their own might, they don't see their own inadequacies, and consequently they make all these plans without the fear and faith in the Lord. Well, that is a fool's errand. On the other side of things, we see what happened when Israel was obedient to the plan of God, when they followed his means that brought them to his ends. They might have thought, great idea, God, to conquer Jerusalem, but we would prefer to do this our way. We think it would be far more successful. If they had proceeded disobediently with some carefully calculated military tactical strategy, do you think their efforts would have been successful? Absolutely not. Success for Israel ultimately was based on their obedience to the Lord. Would that we would learn that lesson. Our hope is based and our security is found. Success is ultimately found in obedience to the Lord. The fruit of repentance worked in and through the life of a believer. Not leaning on humanistic strategies and ideas. Seems counterintuitive on the face, but on closer notice you might, have, you might, you might note with uh, others like McKnight who said, as the land of Canaan belonged to the Israelites by a grant from God, the possessor of heaven and earth, it was proper that the first city which resisted them should be taken in such a manner as to demonstrate the truth of their title. What is he saying? Well, he's saying that it makes sense that if this land was owned by the sovereign possessor, God himself, that announcing that his power was sovereign and they would trust in the Lord, the owner of the Lord, to give the land to them, this was a powerful proclamation of the truth. If the Israelites had gathered their swords and just done it that way, the message they would have sent is, he who has the greatest might makes right. He who has the right to occupy this land is the one who can fight for it and hold it. But the Israelites in their obedience in this effort recognize that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The people all that dwell therein and therefore when they trusted God to give them their inheritance rather than take matters into their own hands. Now in this kingdom conquest their faithfulness initially, I'm sure, looked like foolishness to the inhabitants of Jericho. Each march of obedience would further befuddle the onlookers. What in the world are these idiots doing? You can imagine the jeers from the watchmen around the precipice of that imposing wall. 
taking bets with one another. You think they'll show up tomorrow? Should I dump a little oil on them? How about I'll just lob a long arrow? They hardly look threatened. I don't count two swords among them. Or maybe they have weapons, but compared to ours, they might as well be ants. And so you can imagine the disdain of the onlookers in the inhabitants of Jericho, not respecting, caring nothing about this weird event that is going on beyond their borders. We've been going through Matthew 27 and 28, recalling the very event that defeated the ultimate enemy, death, Satan, sin, and also led to the glorious resurrection of Christ. And there were the mockers who assembled on that day. And as Christ was crucified before him in an act of cosmic triumph, they laughed and scorned. If you are really the Savior, why didn't you come down from that cross? If you are really God's chosen people, why don't you knock down this wall? This is the attitude from the evil one and all who join his mockery and derision of his Messiah. Happened in Noah's day, Jericho, and at the cross, it happens in our day as well. As you seek to live a biblically faithful life in an age of growing apostasy, the convictions that you share with Scripture will be increasingly mocked and marginalized from the majority opinion of the world in which you live. If you continue to say that homosexuality is a sin, you'll become increasingly marginalized and pushed to the fringes and mocked. And they will say, look at our superior authority, the Supreme Court who has ruled otherwise. And who are you, you vagabond who won't get on the right side of history, believing in this ancient book written in the Bronze Age by a bunch of superstitious goat herders or whatever, pejoratives that the unbeliever wants to lob in the direction of Scripture. The message of Jericho is continue marching around the seemingly impregnable walled city of this culture. How do you march? You march by holding to your convictions, not changing them, not compromising them, in faith, standing on them and preaching with truth and love, the unchanging, infallible, never-failing or fading word of Christ. And you might be one individual among thousands, just a collection, a remnant, um, in an imposing environment, much like Jericho. The message is to keep marching around that wall. Stay faithful. As the mockery increases, so does the time frame upon which God will bring just recompense against the wicked or in His sovereign grace, bring them to repentance. But God has not ordained that men be brought to repentance without the word being preached. How are they going to come to Christ if they cannot hear? And how can they hear if you're afraid to march around Jericho? Because it's on day six and you feel more and more like an idiot. Nothing's happening except the increase of the jeers of the onlookers. Faithfulness looks foolish to the world, but only for a brief moment in time. Preaching is like this. Commentators have noted that the Word of God faithfully proclaimed over and over again, the simple, unadulterated truth of the gospel that in its best representation isn't new and improved with each message, isn't garnished with a whole bunch of entertainment, but speaks to the heart and the soul and the issues of a dying culture, even if they do not listen, the message for the faithful preacher, preaching to myself now, is this. 
that as long as they are not dead, my call is to bring the truth. And yours, saint, is the same. So long as your beloved, beloved family member that has been obstinate to the word of Christ, that won't listen to your testimony, that runs away from conversations centered around things eternal, so long as they are not dead, continue marching around Jericho, as it were, proclaiming the word of Christ. At some point, God may bring them to salvation. They may bow the knee before His Lordship. There were those inside of Jericho who did. That brings us to our last point, personal conversion. Briefly note that this reckoning was citywide in, in Jericho. You'll notice the theme of city. We've covered it at length in Hebrews 11. Cain built the city in rebellion against the Lord. Abraham fled from a city that was an idolatrous location. Lot broke with Abraham and took refuge in the city of the plains. Those cities uh, that his nephew inhabited were destroyed by fire. Yet Abraham, what was he looking for? Verse 8, Abraham obeyed by faith. He was called to go to a place that he was to receive as to inheritance. He went out not even knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Verse 10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. The city that has foundations, not Jericho foundations, but the foundations upon the designer that were established by the designer and builder who is God himself. We're talking New Jerusalem here. No substitute will do. Everyone will be destroyed. Go to Revelation 18. What does it record? The destruction of the quintessential city of man, Babylon, and all its pompous rebellion, just bustling with commerce, huge building, edifices, and government structures. The lights are on, and, and society is just ringing with the, the, you know, with the false joy of man's corruption, and in a day it's destroyed, just like Jericho. This world and its system, the enemy and all his schemes and every man or uh, authority that has risen up in its ugly head against our sovereign will be destroyed. That, that's the record of history. Every city of man crumbles, just like Jericho, just like Babylon. But there is a city whose builder and designer is God and whose foundations will never be destroyed. It's built upon the word of God proclaimed by his apostles and prophets. And that's why in Revelation, we see its foundations identified with the proclamation of those who were commissioned to bring the message of Christ crucified into the world. And as that message goes forth, those living stones of that city, you and I, are being fitted together upon that foundation. And one day that bride, it's also pictured as a bride, will come out of heaven and will be the dwelling place of his people in his favor forever. And Babylon will be destroyed. This is a message of kingdom conquest. Sometimes it's hard to believe when you're marching around those walls that cast a shadow over you unless it's noonday. Final point, personal conversion. Oh, this is just amazing. As we, there's a woman who is saved and her family from inside that city. Can you think of a more polarizing circumstance than this vagabond band that is marching around them claiming this city is ours, we hold the deed God the Sovereign has said so. And these guys were like, look at what we built, come and take it, <laughs> laughing at them all the while. Yet there is a woman behind these walls who, when visited by two unassuming spies, provides safe harbor and shelter for them and says, you are the rightful owners of this city. I know it. It's like, I'm going to hide you, and just so you know, I'm basically on your side, 
It's just a matter of time, and we are going to be conquered. What? Why did, was Rahab of this frame of mind? Because she had heard the testimony of God's exploits. She had heard the word of the Lord proclaimed to her and the parting of the Red Sea and the defeat of Israel's enemies. She had heard whispers coming from afar of bread being supplied, man in the wilderness. And by God's grace, she wasn't a stupid Egyptian who couldn't tell that the plagues were a reason for them to repent or didn't see that the cloud of glory that shielded them from those that they were pursuing was good reason to change your course of action. She bowed her knee and when it was just two spies sneaking in so they didn't get caught, said, I'm with you guys. Powerful indeed. This was a personal conversion. What does this signal for us? First of all, Gentile ingathering. This was a pagan conversion. This woman was a Canaanite. More than that, she was a prostitute. If you look at these issues, these seemingly insurmountable obstacles, her inadequacies in her experience, in her environment, in her lifestyle, in her past sins would seem to prevent her from identifying with the people of God if there ever was an alien from God's safe haven. Yet she was one among the many, many Gentiles, including you and I, who would be gathered in to the kingdom. What faith. Rahab treated the spies as if they had already conquered her land. Her faith recognized the inevitable. She was bowing before her new Lord, her new Savior, in submitting to God's rule through her providing hospitality to these spies. Joshua 2, 9-11 through tells us as much. The record of Rahab continues as an example of faith and obedience. It's commemorated in more places than just Hebrews 11, James 2.25. She is featured as an example that faith without works is dead. Rahab showed her faith by her works. Just a, an amazing step of faith to identify and declare your allegiance with two you know, spies, two uh, vagabonds, coming on non-citizens coming into this wall, sneaking into this walled city. But that action demonstrated her faith. And if she had rejected the spies for fear of Jericho authorities, she would have shown herself to have no faith at all. Yet Rahab had faith. And she demonstrated that faith by her works, providing safe harbor for these spies. Hebrews 13, if we just go forward a page or two, there's... This great record of faith by way of example and explanation gives way to application. And we have in 13.1 this admonition. So to the hearers of this sermon in Hebrews, the author says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. What example do you suppose is, remains in the back of the author's mind as he gives this admonition? The first of his application points. Well, certainly Rahab. Let brotherly love continue. Be like Rahab. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, especially those that identify with the Lord, because thereby some, like Rahab, have entertained angels, as it were, messengers from God unawares. Powerful indeed. This was the testimony of this woman. This woman was an extreme case. Think of the personal inadequacies. I've touched on a couple. This is no surprise to the ultimate message of the gospel, but at the time it must have seemed like a way, 
like a, a, an extreme outlier. Matthew 21, 31, Jesus says that publicans, sinners, prostitutes, they are going to be the types that inhabit the kingdom of God. Why? The aim of our message comes to mind. They often are more likely to see their own inadequacies and therefore trust the sufficiencies of Christ. Can you identify with Rahab? Do you see yourself as Paul did, as the chief of sinners? Do you see yourself as an extreme case? Do you look back upon your old life and sin and recognize that you are totally inadequate to be found in good standing before the Lord? More than this, Rahab is included in the lineage of Christ. Do you think the Bible is shy or ashamed to include a prostitute in God's plans? Absolutely not. She's identified with her former vocation to showcase grace. She's called the harlot and prostitute throughout the Bible. Why? It's to show the superior power of God to overcome the biggest obstacle of all, which is our egregious, God-hating, wicked, depraved, decrepit sin. The nature of harlotry is breaking the covenant over and over and over again. A covenant breaker, by very definition, entertaining covenantless relationships over and over again. Self-serving anarchy and lawlessness against the Holy One of God. Yet there is room for repentance for one such as this if they see their sin as such and repent and declare their allegiance with the Lord. Matthew 1.5 shows us that Rahab is in the lineage of Christ. There are so many reasons why we think of this woman being unlikely to be counted among the faithful. She was a pagan. She was born and raised, no doubt, in Jericho. She was a woman. In this time, you know, women were not seen, especially independently like this, to feature prominently in the cultural narratives and in places of privilege. Yet this woman is included in Hebrews 11 as a testimony of the faithful all by herself, as it were. She was a prostitute, as we've mentioned. She was a Gentile. She was a citizen of an enemy nation. She was a, a city dweller in this culture of blatant idolatry. It was no doubt a wealthy place. After all, it had secured all of the money to build this impregnable fortress. They were self-assured people. They felt absolutely safe behind their walls. They were technologically superior people, no doubt. After all, their defenses were second to none. And this was wartime. And yet, in spite of all of these setbacks, all of these reasons that Rahab was unlikely to be counted among the faithful, the power of Jesus Christ is seen in bringing her to conversion, to faith, in the message of salvation. How could this happen? This is the power of the body and blood of Christ illustrated in redemptive history in real time. This morning, the superior power to overcome the sea, the city, and the harlotry of our past is pictured before us in the shed blood and the broken body of Christ. Hebrews itself says that access beyond the veil and separation from the same is certainly our sin is gained through this means and this means alone as represented here in this meal. At the table of communion, as it were, harlots repent and become faithful saints who are included in the lineage of Christ, the family of God. 
transformed and redeemed. This is the message of Hebrews. This is the message of communion. If you have experienced that transformation from darkness to light, from sin to salvation, this table is open and it is for you today. If you are not a believer, do not partake in this meal because you simply eat and drink judgment on yourself. It'd be like Egyptians saying, oh sweet, away through the water without repenting and following Christ. That's what participating in this meal is as an unbeliever. This is serious stuff. Every man will be judged by his relationship to Jesus Christ, whether he has accepted his death as, you know, a quaint little fact of history, or as the propitiatory sacrifice where the shed blood of the God-man was the only sacrifice that could satisfy the wrath of God that he deserved for his own sin. That is the divide. If you trust that Jesus' blood is that for you, I'd encourage you to partake with us in this meal. And as you do so, we remember and proclaim the power to save a prostitute, the power to split the seas, the power to bring down the kingdoms of this earth, and the power to establish eternally the kingdom of God that you and I will inhabit one day at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us transition in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this opportunity we have to be reacquainted with our first love as we have beheld your word, as we have seen the example of its mighty power, and as we partake in the same at your table, impress upon us the reality of our salvation, that we might be thoroughly equipped, built up in our inner man, Lord Jesus, and inspired to move beyond this place to proclaim faithfully, clearly, and without shame, Christ is died for sinners, yet he is raised and he rules and reigns. We thank you, Lord, that you are a king, you are our savior, you are our Messiah, you are our prophet and our priest. It's in your name we pray and we give you all the glory, our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.